Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, your host for Media Mavens Podcast. Here today with Joe Pirates, my co-host. What's up, Joey? Oh, we're doing well here on a Tuesday afternoon. Yes. I don't even know what day it is. I feel we've done so many podcasts. I know. We are literally into our season three of Media Mavens podcast. So I'm super excited. And in yes. season three, I'm super excited right now because and I'm just going to introduce Angela Vermeulen is on our show right now. We just wrapped up a space panel with all of our Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'm super excited. And like... Angela, I feel like I'm just welcoming you back again for the second, third time, which is super awesome. But you are the co-founder of Seeds and a space systems researcher, and you've done so much amazing stuff up there. So it's super excited to have you on twice in a row right now with the Uh team and to talk about your background and what you've done. And I know it's late. It is only noon here in LA, but I know it's almost midnight over there in Belgium. So I want to kind of jump in and like talk to us about what's going on because we had such great intel on our panel with you guys that's also on our podcast and being released. But let's talk about what you're doing on the space systems research and seed. You've had a few things you're working on that we didn't really get into depth on. And I know Joe has a few questions. So give us a little bit of background of kind of how you fit into the whole or to the whole orbit. Talk to us about your orbit right now. Well, uh, thanks for having me and good to see you again. I have a mixed background and I'm operating in a kind of hybrid field of creativity. I mean, that's the best way to put it. I'm actually an artist and a scientist and I blend both modes of thinking, both ways of thinking. My practice in, in, in space exploration really comes from my original background in biology. I'm actually a biologist who transitioned towards the field of uh, space exploration. And I'm approaching it basically from, from two sides. On one hand, I'm very interested in bio-inspired engineering. That's like designing systems that take concepts from biology and then embedding them in engineering. For example, could we build systems that evolve over time, like technologies that evolve over time? Could we build technologies that grow themselves? Growing and evolution, growth and evolution are typical biological principles. And I really, I'm really interested in that. On the other hand, I'm also very interested, and I've been working on that for quite some time now, on the how do we bring ecology to space? If you look at a lot of science fiction, a lot of that is very clinical. There is no room for plants or, or life, life, other life forms apart from aliens. But if we want to go into deep space for a much longer time than, than the kind of missions that we're doing now, we'll need ecology to sustain us. And I'm very interested to see how we could do that. And so these are really my two angles into the world of space exploration. But like I said, I'm also an artist. So I do create art projects that are informed by this research. And, and it, it's really this, this kind of hybridity that, I'm, that, I'm, that I really love. Nice. Let's talk about, so I, I know you're doing a lot of research and we kind of jumped into the whole biosphere and orbit and stuff. But the most recent thing you did is, let's talk about building out in space. You know, because I know you're the co-founder of SEED, which is, you know, the space ecology, art, development. You, you're, are you, like, you're working on building these ecosystems up there. And I know you have a biology and an art background. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you've been working on lately? Or if there's anything that you're currently working on that's currently evolved 
that's being used up there or being researched by NASA? Well, Space Ecology is Art and Design. That's the actual um, acronym, uh, SEEDS. We have flown a few things to space, but there were actually artworks that were basically, we, we added artworks to an existing biological experiment that was dealing with, and that, that would take me into a whole different direction, but that, that was actually a space, it, it is a space biology experiment on small organisms called rotifers, and they have a unique capacity to repair their DNA. And hey, wait, it's what interesting. are they called again? They're called rotifers? A rotifer, yes. Okay. It's a very, it's, it's the, probably the smallest animal on the planet. It's about a thousand cells. That's it. It's a very tiny microscopic animal. It has a, a unique capacity to, to, like I said, to repair its DNA. And so it, it's a really interesting model to study whether they retain that capacity to repair their DNA in outer space. And that's a professor, Karin van Doning, from, uh, from universities in Belgium here. She's working on that together with her collaborators. They had a project in, in which they were sending these animals to space to check if they were still capable of repairing their DNA in space. And she, because I'm specifically, like I said, I'm interested in these in, in the crossover between art and science. And so she was asking Seeds, could you add an artwork? And so we added a kind of miniature artwork to her experiments in space that we're still working on right now. So that's something that we actually sent to space. But apart from that, we haven't done or built anything in space. Personally, I've been involved with the MELISSA project from the European Space Agency. And the MELISSA project is really a concept of a regenerative ecosystem, a bioregenerative ecosystem. It's basically an ecosystem, it's very minimal. It's just a couple of bacteria and different bioreactors and some plants and algae, all put together with humans. And the idea is that you take, you have to imagine, you take every single molecule that comes out of a human body, you capture it, you feed it through those different bioreactors, and gradually you break down that human waste into nutrients and CO2 for plants, those provide food and oxygen, and you've got a fully closed loop. That is something entirely different than what we are experiencing here on Earth with so much waste and so much food waste. So it is really very an extremely sustainable solution for long-term survival. And I've been collaborating with this team for over 10 years now, and I've built a virtual version on, of this system so we can run experiments on our computers to you know, explore different kinds of scenarios that could happen in outer space. How much do you think could be good out there? I mean, you know, there's so much, there's so many things besides being down here with gravity and being up there and in these, you know, you're, you're, you're in these, I don't want to say oxygen, these chambers, you're not obviously out roaming around in the orbit, you're in you know, the capsules and stuff. How hard is it to regenerate cells and all this stuff? I mean, you're a biologist as well. So is it, is it a big challenge to try to figure out how to be sustainable for life up there? Or is it something that's easy? It's just trying to figure out the right math and the right science to make it work in those environments. There's a, a quite a number of challenges involved. It sounds easier than it actually is. It's not like you just take, take a couple of plants and they will provide some oxygen and every day you've got some some food coming out. One of the things that is typical for ecosystems is that they are quite they can be quite unpredictable. Chaos is a key feature of nature. And nature seems to be in balance. You know, a natural ecosystem seems to be in balance. But actually, if you dive deeper down into all the processes that are happening, it's a very dynamic uh, system that is in constant flux. And it's, it, can, it can move in different directions. The thing is, if you build an ecosystem, and this is crucial, in space, you have, you, you have very small reservoirs. 
if you have an ecosystem on Earth that relies on rain and the air, well, those are gigantic reserves, you know. But if suddenly you go to space, you only have so much air, right? So all the reservoirs are very small. And so if you build a, a miniature ecosystem, which is like a, a simplified version of the, of the world as we experience it, and everything is connected, if one of those, those things goes wrong, the whole cycle is immediately affected because there is no buffering. So this, this chaotic nature, uh, the, the chaotic nature of nature um, is something that we still have to, yeah, we still have to find solutions on how to deal with that. And of course, you can approach biology from an engineering perspective as a machine to a certain extent, but you do have to accept that biology is not always doing exactly what you expect it to do. So building a system with enough, enough buffers that can actually handle that aspect of nature is really, uh, takes time. And then secondly, the impact of space on organisms that actually are used to live on Earth in gravity without so much radiation. So you might have your system fully operational on Earth, taking into account that, you know, there's enough buffering and it can, it can handle this, uh, disturbances and stuff like that and variations. But then you bring it to space, you don't know it's really going to work. So you need to test every organism and test its behavior and, most importantly, its productivity. Because if you're relying on an algae that produces oxygen for you, you bring it to space and the oxygen production goes down 50%, you're in trouble, right? So these are some of the challenges that are inherent in, in, in this. But we will get there. At a certain point, we will we will master this. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. Are you like, so I know you're consulting with this company called Liquifier and you just, it was as recent as last year on the Horizon Project for Living Architecture. You talked about bioreactor walls and microbiofuel cells technology and synthetic microbes and like, is every, is, is this, I can't, I don't even know how to explain that versus talk about it. Is this is one of your most recent projects. I know everything has an underlying biology technology yes. thing what is what is the horizon 2020 is this something because i know this came out last year correct during COVID? It's a couple of years ago and horizon 2020 is actually a european support program it supports new ideas so you can submit a project to horizon 2020 and i was a consultant for the living architecture project that was that was funded by horizon 2020 it's technically not my project, but it's a very interesting project. It was actually set up by Rachel Armstrong, who's also, I would recommend you to invite her for this podcast. She's a very interesting speaker. And she she really developed this idea of, of living architecture. We are actually both working on living architecture, but both from a, a different perspective. And she's really interested in building architecture that consists out of bioreactors. And it's something that I've worked on before as well. Uh, uh, together with Likifer, it's a space architecture company in Vienna. We worked on a concept for a habitat that could be used both in space and underwater, in which part of the walls were actually algae bioreactors. So part of your world's walls were actually containing liquid, containing water and algae. So your walls would partially be green, growing algae, and they're recycling the CO2 and turning it in, in, in oxygen. And what Rachel is doing in the Living Architecture Project is, is, is taking that a step further and building entire structures, entire architectures, where every all the, the elements of the architecture are actually functioning bioreactors with bacteria that process the waste materials of the people living in the building. And this is what you guys work on, because when we talked before about sustainability, you know, life on Mars and building, you know, up there as a secondary life way of living way down the road. These are all the things that are going to make it more sustainable living down the road when they get to the point to where 
and make sense that it's survivable up there, correct? There's a few, yes, there's a few components to the whole sustainability debate in, in space exploration because it's it's a relatively recent that this idea of making space exploration more sustainable. I mean, a, it, it's only the last 10 years that this really became a, a, a talking point. And there's a few components to that. The first, first one is, of course, what I just said. It's building circular systems. It's funny, but actually, I mean, it's a funny way to say it, but it's basically waste it does not exist anymore in such a system. Everything is a resource, right? It's like obsolete obsolescence. So that, that's one key component. The second key component is, and there's a lot of research on this by many different organizations and companies, is in situ resource utilization, easy to. And this, with, with this approach, you're basically trying to investigate what can we use on Mars or on the moon that is that we can build with instead of bringing everything from Earth. For example, if you um, you can take soil from the from the moon regolith, and you can actually using quite a bit of energy, you can split it into oxygen and metals. Oxygen, of course, it's something that we badly need, and the metals could be used for construction. So this is perfectly feasible. So this this in situ resource utilization is definitely going to be part of, of of the future of space exploration, building with local materials and finding resources there. And then the third one is, and that's something that of course companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX have been working on extensively, is with reusing your space vehicles and your space infrastructure and just instead of just single use. Uh, vehicles. Uh, this idea of reuse is is nothing that that Blue Origin or, Space, or SpaceX came up with. That's a very old idea. It's actually an idea from the beginning of the space age. Uh, Werner von Braun was already thinking about a sort of space. He, he was the originator of the concept of the of the space shuttle, basically. So this idea of reuse is, is quite old, actually. But there's so much like, space trash up there when pieces break apart because you can't like, just go bring it in and put in a big trash bin up there. Things just float up. Wouldn't there be a better way to take all of these pieces and be able to keep them kind of sequestered in a big net or somewhere? So as you guys are constantly rebuilding, doesn't leave so much metals and trash floating around up there. Because we talked to one or two of the guys about, you know, there's so many properties and so many natural resources and asteroids, you know, but, you know, either there's space stations up there, there's satellites, there's so much stuff up there to pull from. I would think that people would be a little bit more in tune to using what's up there. Like you said, recycling these metal pieces that are floating around. And then you have the asteroids up there. So I think there would be an abundance of resources up there if we could figure out how to kind of rope them in and break them down. Well, I think it's a little overestimated. I mean, if you if you take a, an image of Earth and then you, you pinpoint all the debris around a globe on a chart... It looks like a huge density, but this, the scale is wrong. A pixel is still way too big to represent a tiny particle that's floating up there. So the, the actual mass that you would be able to, to collect over a long period of time would be limited in terms of, of what you need for building. So I don't think that, I mean, it, it, it is definitely interesting to think about recycling larger structures in space. And that's actually something that I'm working on myself, but just little flakes of paint and, and a, a few bolts that are run, speeding around Earth. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of effort for just a little bit of recovered metals. I, I don't think that's really... that's. Really Nobody needs to chase down a little screw 
floating around the, the orbit. A little screw can do a, a tremendous amount of damage. We've seen the movies, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot of, of, of Hollywood movies recently. Like, do you uh, think there's the, is there? Do you think there's a lot of realistic measures to that? I mean, like you said, we see a lot of movies, and we've talked about this before. Because my favorite show we've talked about this was The Expanse, the most realistic mm-hmm. form of living up there. I mean, do you really think there's any? I don't want to say any truth, but you, like they would say, art imitates life or life imitates art. Do you really think some of these things, these movies are realistic measures? Because we did speak with Henry Jacobson from, I think it was over on that part of the world about asteroid defense. And then we see all these movies. So we have these grandiose ideas. I mean, how realistic is some of this stuff? Like a little screw could do a lot of damage. We've seen the movies, like you just said. Can it really do that much damage if it gets caught up in the atmosphere and the velocity of something, given how small it is? I mean, it of is? course. I mean, it's well known that very tiny particles can cause huge, huge damage. It's all about kinetic energy, right? The higher the speed, the more energy it has. And if yeah. you stop it, that energy needs to go somewhere and it'll go into the material that it hits and then it'll be a big hole. There are photos, I mean, you can find them on the internet of a very tiny particle that is shot with a tremendous velocity to a one meter piece of, 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 I think it was steel, and the, the hole is huge for such a tiny particle. So no, it is, it is a, a big problem. And in terms of science fiction, I do teach about science fiction as well. And you can see a, a trend, and I think we've all seen that, that within science fiction, and, and I think it's different in literature. Literature traditionally has a broader variety of, of, of approaches and stories. I think the visual representation in cinema of science fiction is usually more narrow and it's very dominated by, by Hollywood and American, the American way of looking at things. But over the past, let's say, 15 years, there is suddenly this interest in realistic science fiction, right? I think gravity was really the big breakthrough where you basically have a space station that looks pretty much like the actual space station in the astronaut suits or the actual astronaut suits, etc. cetera. Uh, and there was a huge, a huge interest in that. And that's probably because... There is an acknowledgement that we now have a permanent presence in space and people, part of humanity living up there is now normal. And so it becomes interesting to explore that instead of only projecting into some deep future, deep past, completely removed from contemporary experience. And I think, yeah, but people being invited by, by stories that Elon Musk brings out, being invited to project themselves into this future, I think there there is a different imagination that starts to to get to get to develop itself, and I think that finds its way into people that are writing scripts and are making movies. So that that's really really interesting, I think. And uh, the Expanse, I'm a big fan of the Expanse, but I wouldn't yeah, I say told this you, is Joe. Joe's the only one. We're trying to get Joe to watch the Expanse. Yeah, 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 yeah. jumping on this. I'm not a huge fan of the first episodes. You need to go through the first episodes and then it gets better. But the thing is, I wouldn't call that realistic. I mean, it's a bit difficult to define because it, there is a, an element of fantasy in, yeah. in The Expanse. And, but some aspects of it feel realistic. Like they, they, do the, they get the physics quite, quite well. For example, that's one of the things, but much there is some ecology and life supporting ecology present in the expanse. It's it's rare to find. Well, I think I can pick up all the shows we've all watched. It's the most attainable of where we could end up. Yes, exactly. And and especially it's not little aliens in, you know, like rocket. I mean, it's actually pretty attainable. But I and I know before we started the podcast, Joe has some really good topics he wants to bring up. And before I turn this onto him so he has a really big question to talk about i just have a quick question for you 
What is an analog astronaut? An analog astronaut is an astronaut that actually doesn't go to space. Oh, okay. And that simulates space missions here on Earth in different types of environments. There is not one ultimate analog station or analog habitat. Every analog mission simulates another component of what it means to go to space. So some uh, analog missions will be focusing on vehicles. Some analog missions like HICES, which in which I participated, I was the commander of the first HICES mission. I lived for four months isolated with five other crew members. Our mission was really focused on crew dynamics and, and, and psychology. What happens to people when they're locked up with, with a small group of people over a long period of time? What kind of dynamics in terms of productivity and leadership and general team dynamics? What can you observe? So those are analog astronauts. And one of my colleagues from High Seas One, from High Seas Mission One, Cyan Proctor, just got selected to go to space. She will be the pilot of the first civilian nice. mission to space. So Look she's one of the four people who will go to space as a fully civilian mission, probably in September, October. And she's a good friend, of course. I lived with her four months cooped up in this small habitat. I know pretty much everything about her. Oh, my God. Um, it's she's she's, she's just perfect. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And you got to invite her. <laughs> I literally, I, I, I literally, if we can, I know we're going to hit you up on this. We'd love to have her on the show before she goes up because I had a very dear friend whose client was over in Russia, cosmonaut, training and training to go up. And she ended up not sticking it out to the program. Just so much bad shit happened. And like, they kept coming out more money, more money, more money. They kept, the broker kept coming after her. We need another 100,000 here, another 300,000 here. And just the safety and environment was not good. So they actually aborted the Cubs school and, you know, she ended up, Sarah Burrell ended up paying a lot of money to be in that, but it just, it was like years ago. It just wasn't a good fit for her, but I would love it to have your friend on to talk about how she's preparing to go up there. Like, I think I want to talk to her before she goes up, have Mm. to shoot down some photos and talk to her after that would be tremendous. She might be, yeah, she might become a superstar. So (laughs) you better get a hold of her. No, no, no. uh... (laughs) We will, but we'll get her back on. But okay, this is a whole other conversation because I'm now more intrigued about her journey up there and how she's preparing for it. But okay, sorry, Joe, I've just gone way up (laughs) around the orbit on that one because now I'm excited to bring her on. But okay, let's, let's circle back to Earth here for a second. We were chatting prior to this, Joe. What I know you had a question, some stuff you want to chat about. Well, we had um, Angelo on the podcast. Okay. First of all, with high seas, when you're talking about crew dynamics, you're going to be in there. You were in there for four months, which we're talking long-term mission. That's nothing. I mean, look what happened at Biosphere 2 when they started out. I don't think they lasted six months before one of them had to actually leave. And we're talking long, long-term long mission like that. What was the dynamics on that? I mean, can humans live together in a small space like that? Let's say if they do decide to go to Mars and try to colonize Mars, that's a small space to be putting up with someone that you may not really like or you agree with for more than two years. Yeah, and it really boils down to crew composition. I mean, it's not like a person is, per definition, not a good, uh, an, an adequate person to do a mission like this. It's all about how you fit in. And so part of the interest of the High Seas program, the NASA-funded High Seas missions, because now High Seas is a more commercial program, but the, one of the interests was not just to observe the effect of long-term isolation on crew dynamics and, and, and psychology, but also, was also, can we? is there a recipe? Is there a way to figure out how to put together 
different types of personalities that that could work with each other. It's 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 not like they. I don't think they they cracked it. They they, they just got the solution here. But so that's definitely an important component. But you can already you can really sense that pretty quickly. The basics of that. If you put together a crew of selected people that are selected to participate in a mission like this, I remember my training, we were with nine people. Six of us were going to be selected as the prime crew. The other three were going to become the backup. And we, we were put together and doing training and all kinds of things. And you can quickly feel who connects well with who. I mean, it's, it doesn't take any rocket science. You can observe it from, as an outsider. You, you start to grasp pretty quickly who, who, who works well with each other. But of course, scientifically, it would be interesting to have a bit more of a, a more objective approach to that. So that's an important uh, component there. The other component that I think is really crucial is leadership. And this is something I, I was, I'm a community artist, apart from being a space researcher. And I already had done globally community art in different cultures, being exposed to all kinds of challenges. I worked on a, in a volcanic disaster zone in Indonesia, building, creating an artwork there with local people. I lived in the Philippines. I did projects in Europe and the US. So I had quite a good sense of different types of cultures and people. And so that's why I was offered the role of crew commander. And it was the first time that I was really like, maybe I shouldn't be winging it as I'm usually doing it. When I was working with communities, I was really doing it as an artist because, you know, that's what art is all about. There's a lot of intuition involved. And, and suddenly I was like, maybe I should reflect a little better on what it means. What, what does leadership mean for me? And I came to the conclusion that, first of all, I'm very much of a facilitating leader. I don't think that a traditional top-down leadership really operate, works well in these circumstances. There is quite some discussion there. Some people disagree with that, but I don't believe that a top-down military style leadership would work because the people you're dealing with are not soldiers. It's a different type of person. You're dealing with engineers and scientists that are used to work pretty autonomously, that have their own research agenda. And you can't just wake up. I couldn't wake up in the morning and be like, and now you're going to do this and you're going to do this. Of course not. Everybody knows what needs to be done. So facilitation and putting yourself in service of the productivity and the creativity of the crew is way more important. And that's actually something I picked up from uh, Frank de Winne. And he was the first European commander of the space station. He's a Belgian astronaut. Uh, and when I talked to him, that was one of the things that he said. He was like, you know, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't telling anybody what, what needed to be done. I was mostly looking out to make sure that everybody was as productive as they could be, removing as many obstacles as I could. And I kind of internalized that and I, I used it as well. But it, it also matches with my personality. It's not like I had to artificially do this. This was something I was actually already doing. And so my, my guideline really during that mission became crew cohesion. This was for me my metric to see how the, or to, to evaluate how we were doing. And what I really wanted to avoid was the crew falling apart into individuals where everybody would, it's very tempting. You can imagine, and especially everybody has had lockdown experiences now, uh, to lock yourself away in your office or your room because, you know, you're just not in the mood to be distracted or talk with other people. But if you sustain that, that is not healthy for a group, of course. I mean, for many reasons, it's not healthy. First of all, for your mental, your mental well-being, it's not good to be you know, living individually. But also, imagine something going wrong suddenly, unexpectedly. And you're not really used to work together. You're going you're gonna to make mistakes. And if you have a, a high level of crew cohesion, you're really glued together as a group 
something goes wrong, you just snap into the sort of problem solving mode and you take you, you just handle the problem. And that's actually that's actually really key. And so I had all my little at all my different ways of trying to maintain and increase that level of crew cohesion that I wanted. Interesting. Let's go to now your project, uh, Seeker. And I think this is a very interesting project because we're talking to get about uh, biodiversity of space. With that Seeker project, is there a talk about you know how, how these plants will react to like the radiation that they'll possess probably when they go up in the space? Because uh, apparently radiation is a big issue when it comes to going after another planet's Will the plants be able to heal themselves when it comes to that uh, radiation? I'm, I'm very curious about this project. I read up a lot on it, and okay, okay. it seems yeah. like there's there's a lot going on with it. So the project, just to to describe it a bit for our for our audience here, what it is is actually it's an, an art project, an art science project, but mostly an artistic project, in which we invite communities to reimagine how a starship could look like. And it's explicitly a project that is very focused on decolonizing our imagination. That is really at the heart of the project. If you walk out in the street and you would ask people how they imagine a starship, how we would live in deep space, in interstellar space, most people will come up with American examples. Star Trek, Star Wars. There's nothing wrong with that, but the world has much more to offer when it comes to creating our future. It's a little sad that this is the only way we we can think about our future in space. I want to open up that conversation. I want to open up that imagination. That's why why it's really about decolonizing our imagination. And so we bring together a, a group of people that are usually the majority of it is not, is no expert in space at all. And this is what interests me. It's always interesting to ask the non-expert and the amateur about their visions, because that's how you innovate. That's how you break through established paradigms. And a key component is that we actually, we employ the method of rapid prototyping. We use waste materials like cardboard and wood and tape, and we, we quickly build, relatively quickly, it can take weeks, a big sized architectural structure that reflects the kind of ideas that this community has on what is important to bring us to space. These are not professional representations of how we could go to space. These are artifacts that reflect a dialogue in a community on what is important to go to space. So people will start reflecting on, okay, we're building that outside structure, but we're also going to design the interior. And then with that interior design comes reflections on the need for privacy and how would you reorganize such a space? And maybe we can move away from some of the things that we're used to when we're living in a regular house. And crucially, when we completed it, we run isolation missions in the artwork, in the museum. You have to imagine there is this there is a structure that has been built, a, a big architectural structure that's been built in a museum space. And then we lock ourselves up for multiple days on end, artists, designers, thinkers. We run a script. We, we imagine we're in space and we start conversations about space. And this becomes part of the artwork. Now, that's the social component. And there is also an ecological component, which you were basically asking about. Yeah. So we do integrate ecosystem components in our spaceship design. So, okay. so we grow our we grow our food and then we harvest the food during these short isolation missions. The the question about the impact of space on plants, there is a lot of research that has been done. The thing is plants are pretty resilient. At a certain in the beginning people were concerned that plants wouldn't grow really well in space because there's no gravity. How can they figure out how to grow, right? It turns out 
it's not a problem. They, they, can, they can use moisture gradients and nutrient gradients and light to orient themselves, and they can grow perfectly fine in zero gravity. The, the main reason that those early plant experiments didn't look so good is because the conditions and the light conditions were not optimal, and so the plants didn't grow very well. But nowadays, we can, per, we can grow perfect plants in space. Same thing with seeds. Seeds that have, been, that have spent time in space, uh, when you bring them back to Earth, and I recently heard this. I need to I need to verify this, but I'm quite sure it, it's a reliable source. They tried to germinate the seeds and it didn't sprout. So we're like, okay, that's the end of the story. Radiation kills the seeds. But then an intern, I think it was at the European Space Agency, was like, I want to go back to those seeds that have been lying in that you know cabinet for such a long time, for over a year or longer. And then they actually did sprout. So it looks like, yeah, there is some recovery mechanisms that are in place. I think... Okay. Plants are actually quite resilient. But they also have a cellular level of how they produce and regrow leaves, just like humans do. So over time, radiation is going to eventually, we have lower and lower levels, so they probably can't regenerate. Because I always wondered, if you have plants, you're growing stuff up there, how does it, how it's affected down here? Because they always say when astronauts go up, there is a term of physical kind of getting their bodies back into the gravity and back down here and becoming more kind of used to functioning again. I mean, is it kind of the same physiology from humans to plants or is it their different structures? Because humans just can't bounce back as soon as they land back on Earth again either. So you can't really expect a plant to bounce back. Yeah, but I would I don't know this by heart. I would have to look into the scientific literature to see if there was any experiment where they grew plants in space, then they took them to Earth and then they continued monitoring them. And to I'm I'm sure somebody has done it, but I don't know this by heart. Interesting. That I mean, I would like to know what would happen in that situation because I mean that that's that uh, study that you said where they came the ESA came out with the plants about a year later or came out with the seeds and they sprouted. That was amazing. What about humans? Well, I mean, what is it going to take? Because I thought when I saw Seeker, I thought that they they were looking at, you know, what would it take to survive? And you, you say it's more of an art project. And I, I kind of maybe I read a little too much into that. But uh, what would it take for humans to survive something like that? I know you with high seas, you guys were isolated in a you know capsule. And then every time that you went outside, you, you had to use a breathing apparatus like they would on another planet that doesn't have a breathable atmosphere. I think I think we have to move, and I might have talked about this in, in our panel discussion. I, I don't remember 100%, but yeah, I think I talked about it. We need to, yeah. we need to think we about... We talked about med tech, oh. about med tech up there and the yes. medical, what it does, because it's, it's going, I think this is more of a, I don't know, I think we just need to get a space doctor in here, but you guys, you're up there for four, five, six, seven years. I mean, what if a baby's born up there can it survive down here on Earth if its organs and everything are born in no gravity? I mean, I, I mean, is that like a weird question to ask? Maybe no, no, no. I mean, that, that's the domain of space biology, which is, is growing very fast. So there are two interesting uh, biology domains now in space. There's astrobiology and space biology. And astrobiology is really looking at the origin of life and at the same time trying to figure out how we could look for life out there in space. That's astrobiology. Space biology is looking at the questions that you were just asking. What happens to a plant? What happens to crops when you grow them in space? What happens if babies are born in space? And and organisms have known, I mean, there are organisms that can reproduce in space. 
But obviously, yeah, with humans, it's a bit ethically tricky. I mean, we haven't done, you can't really do an experiment with, with, with humans. But there is really a big difference between being in zero gravity, like in the space station, and being on a surface where there is at least an, a level of gravity. I mean, on the moon, it's not much, but there is some gravity. On Mars, of course, we have, we have more than a third of the gravity that we experience on Earth. But the thing on, on, on the surface of the moon is that radiation there is really extreme and on Martian surface as well. Mars has a very thin atmosphere that, that filters out some of, some of it. The moon is especially really harsh. And so these have very different effects, of course, obviously. I'm not so sure what's going to happen if you, if you... I can't imagine... At this point, I find it hard to imagine that things would go perfectly well if you would conceive and give birth to a baby in, in zero gravity, like the whole process. I don't think... You know what we need to do is we need to build those space architectures that we know from the 60s in which they simulate gravity. Uh -huh. That's what we need to do. And there are very little proposals about this. And I think this is the only way forward. You know, when you have um, a, 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 like a Taurus that is spinning around, like in 2001, a space odyssey, yeah. part of the spaceship is actually a spinning Taurus. There's this famous scene of the astronaut walking down and then making a jogging inside of the spaceship. He's actually jogging on the inside of a spinning uh, Taurus. And that, that'll be the solution. We need to invest much more in, in, in adjusting the architectures to what we, we need in combination with augmenting humans. I mean, there's no way around we will have to use particular types of medication and even gene therapy, I guess, in, in the long run to adjust ourselves to the conditions of space. There is a movie, now what's it called? The Space Between Us. Have you guys heard of it? I haven't it, seen it, it. it. It's about, you know, science. It's about crews up there, I believe in Mars, on the red planet, and a child was conceived by accident. She didn't know she was pregnant and they went up there. And it was, it's, it, it's a tremendous, it's by Alan Loeb, I think it's a tremendous movie. It's not like corny, like E.T. type corny. It's actually very, okay. very science-based, uh, based on science. Like, you know, some of these other movies we've talked about of what's going on up there, contact and stuff is very based on science where it did mm -hmm. come back down to earth. And it, it got into the medical side of the conversation of ethics of, you know, because you were born up there, your heart is enlarged down here. You have to have yeah. constant medicine. You can't be in this gravity for periods of time to write. I mean, it's actually, it's actually, you guys need to watch it. I, I think it's probably came out maybe four or five years ago. It's the only yeah, one I've ever heard of, but the space between us, but it was actually more of a drama, very, I want to say as realistic as you could get. That's not goofy or corny, but it really dug into the seriousness of science and space and that evolution of, growth and how it's affecting you coming back down. I mean, there's, there's a lot of impacts of the space environment on your body. I mean, of course, I think what, what's most well known, of course, is that you lose muscle mass. You need to work out on a daily basis pretty intensively to maintain that muscle mass, which is not a bad thing. Bone loss, you know, these are quite famous things, but there is also cardiovascular issues, of course, because your, your heart doesn't have to pump as hard. Uh, and that's why when an astronaut comes back to Earth, if that person, he or she, would just stand up and try to walk out, they would, they would they'll simply faint 
because the heart can't pump the blood around. It's not used to this. So they need a bit of time to adjust adjust themselves. But also there is, for example, a weakened immune system. Uh, there, are, there are effects on the eyes. There are effects on the brain. So there is effects on the brain structure. It's not clear what actual impact on cognition this has. So it's pretty much affecting everything in your body in a, in a different way than you're used on Earth. I feel yeah. like it's a disclosure. When you go up, you got to sign a disclosure. <laughs> oh, I don't yeah, hold totally. you responsible for brain, physical, eye immunity, heart issues. I'm going up because I want to get up and to, you know, head out there and help explore. But here's a non-disclosure. I will not hold you responsible now. Seth. But people know going up that they're going to come back down with a lot of serious problems. And they still do it. They still want to go up there. And that's that's what I was going to bring up. They still want to go up there. But at the same time, I think we have to ask ourselves, is it really worth sending humans into deep space? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a big question that, all, that often comes up there. I mean, it's the idea of sending robots, robotics, and doing yeah. everything with robotics. Well, I personally, have, have, I mean, two arguments that I did like kind of I'm personally interested in is on one hand, humans can do so much more than robotics. I mean, all the research that's been done on Mars so far using the rovers could be done by humans in a much shorter amount of time with the right equipment. I mean, there is there is there is no doubt about it that things go slower with robotics, but you know, of course. And I, I don't think it's a it's a question of choice of choosing between the two. The future is really in bringing together humans and robots and having robots collaborate with humans. So there is this, this kind of combination. I think that, that to me, seems to bring together the best of both worlds and try, and instead of trying to, to choose between the two. But then again, I'm also interested in this idea, this, this, this future that I imagined, which is called the post-planetary condition of, of mankind, of human civilization. It's this condition of civilization where we're not just limited to living on a sphere, sphere of earth on the surface of the sphere of earth but there's also people living on other spheres but beyond spheres they're also living in space stations and maybe mining colonies and starships that are traveling to other stars and it's the collection of all of humanity that becomes the human condition and human civilization which is at that stage post-planetary and you can question this whether we need to do this i believe that this will happen and it's kind of unstoppable and that's because I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, all, in, in most of my scientific research, I'm very interested in emergence systems, systems that nobody really guides from the top. It's basically you put things together and then patterns and, and dynamics emerge out of that. And that's how, how, how civilization evolves. There is no one designer of civilization. It just emerges. And I think going into deep space, into interstellar space, if I extrapolate what we've been doing in history, that's where I end up at. So for me, it's not a question of trying to, to, to criticize or to stop this, this movement. It's more like it's, I'm convinced it's going to happen. So we might as well start to address it now and to start asking critical questions. Yeah, I think uh, the right infrastructure hasn't been developed yet to where humans can do that. I mean, I love, I love the idea about the, the post-planetary period where we can go out and explore but at the same time is I think, you know, I think Elon Musk right now is a little hopeful that it's going to be 2024. We go to Mars, but I, I still no, I think that's that's stretching it. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that doesn't sound realistic to, to the moon. Yes, but not to Mars. That's right. that's more storytelling. 
Yeah, I, I agree that that's that's stretching things a little bit, but it it does it does stir people's imagination, and as a, as a, it, it, he brought a new dynamic, people like him. He's not alone. It's it's often he's often mentioned, but he's not alone. Of course, there are many people that are innovating in the in the space sector, and they 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 just brought a new enthusiasm towards space. And it, there is a contrast, of course. There's so much going wrong on Earth that some people question, do we need to go to space? Should we fix Earth before we go to space? And once again, I think it's inevitable we're going to go to space. So I think it's really important to be part of that conversation. Uh, on the other hand, space is the infrastructure through which we take care of Earth. Don't forget that. I mean, sometimes people are like, well, let's stop the whole space business and focus on Earth first. No, you need space. We discovered climate change because of space exploration. Otherwise, we might have never figured out what was going on. It's specifically because of all those satellites that are constantly monitoring that we kind of figured out something was up, right? So once again, it's not a question of, you know, should we choose one or the other? It's really both working together. Yeah. I think that like such like this conversation, like it's infinite in the wisdom and the discovery and research. I just feel like, you know, we discussed doing this podcast with these space guys and then making the series and doing a panel. And I just feel like out of everything we've talked to you about, just even on this past hour, Angelo, there's like five more subjects now of interest <laughs> that we need to discover and, and jump into. It's insane. But, you know, for the sake of the podcast, I mean, we, we are wrapping up, but I know it's late there, but like this was such a great hour talking to you, having you on. I know we've had you on in the past, but like, honestly, this was probably one of the best conversations with you. We've uncovered so much. So I think that there's more to this. I think there's another 2.0, 3.0. I think there's more conversation to have with you back on here again. I don't think like some of the stuff we talk about, Joe, we talk about sports, entertainment, tech, yeah. evolution of stuff, you know, leadership. But I feel like this is such an ongoing subject that is going to be defined in one or two conversations. And I'll be honest with you, I had a lot of prejudices coming into this. I mean, not not bad prejudices, but ideas. Wait, in general? Yeah, I did. I had some ideas about what space travel was, about what life on other planets would be like, what, you know, where we're going. I had some ideas about that, where where we were going with that. And people like Angelo and our other guests that we had on the podcast with, with space travel and with space commerce has really opened my eyes that I was really wrong when it came to that. And a lot of my judgments were made because of science fiction and not science fact. Well, I think that's why I love having this and why I think these podcasts are so critical. They're not just coffee talk. They're educational. They're based, like space is based on science and math. And there's a lot you could have a prejudice on or a disagreement on or opinion on, but you can't really, you don't have a lot of margin to argue science and math unless you are a true scientist or a mathematician who works in space. I mean, Angela, yeah. you guys have such mad respect for you guys because you guys do put your lives at risk. You do go above and beyond to figure out where is our future. It's not just what's here on earth. And so I just feel like these conversations are not one-off conversation just to have you guys on and then move on to the next subject. I think this is a continuum, so to speak, of consistent conversations with you guys. Because I have five more subjects I want to talk with you, but we're out of time now, you know? But it was so awesome, Angela. I know it's late your time, but I'm so glad you came back on. 
It was yes, I enjoyed it. Of course, I totally. I, as you already imagine, I can talk for hours about this stuff. So <laughs> it's, it's great so, stuff. It's always good talking to you. But oh my god, for now, we are so excited to um, drop some of our space podcast. It was great having you on. We are going to have you back on again. So there's no doubt about that. Sounds great, Joey. Another awesome podcast. Oh yeah. For the record, learned a lot more again. It's so excited to see everybody again next Wednesday. This is Sarah Miller with Media Mavis Podcast. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.